John 18, join me in your Bibles, John chapter 18. We are returning to our study in John's gospel. We've had a summer sermon series. My thanks to uh, Mark and Dave, Tim and Nathan uh, for certainly helping, doing a great job uh, in that series. And this morning, we now return to John chapter 18, verses one through 11. This is where we left off a few months ago back in June. And it is here as John 18 opens that Jesus will begin the final few hours of his earthly life and he will be betrayed by a friend. He will then be bound and brought to the religious leaders of the land. He will then be turned over to Pilate, the Gentile ruler, appointed by God to announce his crucifixion. So the stage is set for the sacrifice of redemption. This is the climax of John's gospel. This is the very heart of our salvation. For three years, for three years, Jesus's message has been the same. My time has not yet come. But in the words of John 7, my time is not yet here. Even though the religious leaders have wanted Jesus dead, they have been unable to carry out their plans. Why? Because the hour of Jesus' death was a divine appointment. It was set to the year and day and minute by God himself. It was an hour that could not be tampered with by his creation. So why we read statements like these. John 7, so they, the vengeful religious leaders, they were seeking to seize him And yet, no man laid his hand on him. Again, why? Here's why. Because his hour had not yet come. It's a divine appointment. John 8, he taught in the temple and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But now, as John 18 opens, Jesus' hour has arrived. And what his enemies could not do for the last three years, they are now allowed to do here. Notice verse 12. The officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. They laid their hands on him. They seized him. The time has come for incarnate God to die. And through this death to fulfill Isaiah 53, to be condemned to death, to be raised on a cross so that he might endure his father's wrath for all he will save. And it is a saving sacrifice that begins here with a despicable betrayal. Read the text starting in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth And said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I 
am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so that, so if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The doctrine in this passage is profound. We see sovereignty as the Father controls every aspect of Jesus's death. While depraved men, unbeknownst to them, do exactly what they want to do, but in doing what they want to do, they actually carry out God's perfect design. We see the faithfulness of Christ. He's committed to fulfill his father's redemptive plan no matter the cost to himself. We see just how hard-hearted man can be. We see it firsthand. These are people who have seen Jesus' miracles, a miracle when he says, I am. And they have heard his teaching. And yet they still reject Christ as Savior and Lord. We see the love of Christ. He is unwilling to let his apostles' faith fail. And it all comes together here in such a way that the glory of Christ cannot be missed. It's a passage that unfolds in four scenes. We'll draw out both theology and application as we go. Four scenes. It begins with scene number one, the Old Testament imagery. The Old Testament imagery. And here I'm talking about the Old Testament pictures and parallels and similarities, the shadows, the echoes of the Old Testament that surround this night. John is fond of putting Jesus's ministry in an Old Testament context. Just think back. Jesus is the manna from heaven, Old Testament. He's the light, the Shekinah light of the world, Old Testament. Well, here you see hints of the Old Testament as well as the scene opens. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, it refers back to the high priestly prayer. John 17 Jesus has prayed this prayer of submission to his father's will. He knows what is in store for him, not just the physical agony, but the wrath of his father. And even still, look at verse one of chapter 17. Jesus says, glorify your son. It's the opening prayer. Glorify your son. Put me on the cross. Give me the honor. Give me the glory of being the savior from sin. Why? Again, verse one of chapter 17, that the son may glorify you. Put me on the cross so that I can, through my death, put the glory of your grace, the glory of your mercy, holiness and wrath and justice, put all of that on display. It's a prayer of submission to his father's redemptive will. And thus, having prayed that prayer of submission, Jesus leaves the walled city of Jerusalem. 
And he goes to a garden in order to meet his betrayer. The details John includes in verse one sets the coming sacrifice of Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament promises of a coming sacrifice. First of all, John tells us that Jesus went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. This was a brook that separated the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. It's 200 feet below the Temple Court to the east of Jerusalem. A seasonal stream. It was dry most of the year, but at this time during Passover, it was far from dry. It was filled with blood, sacrificed lamb's blood. It's a drain that ran from the temple altar through and into the ravine. They needed that drain because of upwards of 200,000 lambs who had been slaughtered during this Passover season. Now here is Jesus in verse one, crossing this brook of blood, which is the very symbol of his own coming death. It's a picture of his own shedding of blood. 1 Corinthians 5 is right. Christ is our Passover. He's the final Passover lamb. He's our Passover sacrifice. 1 Peter 1 is true. Jesus is the lamb unblemished and spotless who must be killed. This is why the angels offer Christ praise in heaven because he is the lamb who was slain. And through that sacrifice, he purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This has been the context, Passover lamb, since Jesus came on the scene. John the Baptist, behold who? Behold the the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Passover. So Jesus' life is about to end. This is the first Old Testament image we see here. Jesus, the final Passover lamb, is walking to his own slaughter. This is why John began this final week of Jesus's life by offering this historical note. Puts it in context. Here's the grid to see these last few chapters. This is now the feast of Passover. That's the grid. It is going to this feast of Passover that Jesus knows that his hour has come. He knows what's in store. And then this note, this is back in John 13, he loved them to the end. He loved us enough to shed his blood. And this is why John will continually remind us that Jesus dies during the Passover celebration. See that in John 18, John 19, why? Why this context? Because Jesus' death was no ordinary death. He is the final Passover sacrificed, a sacrifice that will shield, that will shield all who through faith find their salvation in him and shield us from the wrath of God. Think back to that Old Testament imagery in Exodus. It's the final Passover lamb. There's another Old Testament image though that we see here. It's that Jesus is also the greater David, the coming king, the promised king of Davidic descent. Why? 
Because there's a similarity, there's a parallel. Jesus, as verse one opens, is walking the same path. He's walking the same path that David walked when he too was both betrayed by someone he loved and rejected by the nation. It's a parallel. Listen to 2 Samuel 15. This is the first time, by the way, the first time the Kidron Brook is mentioned in the Old Testament, the first time. John 18 is the last time it's mentioned. 2 Samuel 15, the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom, David's son, the one who was turned on his father. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. For otherwise, none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And here's the note in verse 23. The king passed over the brook Kidron. First time it's mentioned. Now here's the last time it's mentioned. And you can see the parallels that can be drawn. These are Old Testament echoes that are heard. Like David, Jesus has just been betrayed by someone or will be betrayed by someone he loved. Like David, Jesus will be rejected by the nation. Like David, Jesus leaves Jerusalem with his men. He crosses the ravine. But unlike David, Jesus is not fleeing for his life. No, he is actually heading for the very place where he will be bound by his enemies. Jesus is the seed of David promised. He's the greater David who will do what David could not do. He will pay for the sins of his kingdom's citizens. And then he will one day reign over that kingdom forever and ever. He's the final Passover. He's the greater David. There's also a third Old Testament shadow imagery here. It's that Jesus is approaching his cross as the second Adam, the second Adam, the one who will stand in our place, the one who will represent us before his father, the one who will crush the serpent on our behalf, pay for our sins. You hear this echo as verse one continues. Jesus, he crossed the Kidron and there was this no unnamed There was a garden, it's general, unnamed, in which he entered with his disciples. As John 1.1 was meant to bring us back to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the word. Go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was God, in the beginning God. Here, through this imagery, similarities, you can see John bringing us back to Genesis 3, back to the first garden, In that first garden, Satan tempted Adam to sin. In this garden, Judas, and remember the note, he's indwelt by Satan. Satan is coming to this garden on this night. He will tempt Jesus to fail. The contrasts are stark. In the first garden, Adam 
caves to temptation. In this garden, Jesus remains faithful until the end. Not my will, but yours be done. In the first garden, sin and death entered this world. But when Jesus leaves this garden, eternal life will be purchased. The first garden fellowship with God was broken and this garden fellowship with God will be restored. In the first garden, remember, Adam hid. In this garden, Jesus presents himself to the enemy. In the first garden, Adam was removed. In this garden, we read here, Jesus enters. In the first garden, an angel is placed at the entrance to make sure no one is allowed in. In this garden, an angel will be sent to strengthen Jesus to fulfill his saving mission. In the first garden, an angel wields a flaming sword. In this garden, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword. Jesus is the savior who was promised in that first garden. He's the seed of the woman. He's the second Adam who had crushed the serpent on his head. He's the one sent to save mankind from their sin. We see this in Romans 5, the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. We need the second Adam. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, speaking of that first Adam, we read this. He was a type, a picture, a shadow of him, of Christ, the second Adam who was to come. What is the parallel between Adam and Jesus? Answer, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Romans 5, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And anyone who enters this world finds themselves in that category. Because of Adam's sin in that garden, we inherit his sinfulness and guilt. But then the parallel, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Failure in the first garden was rectified by obedience in this garden. And that is how John begins to frame these final few chapters. He puts all of this against the backdrop of Old Testament promises. This is no ordinary night. This is no ordinary man. As Jesus heads to the cross, he do, does so as the final lamb who will be sacrificed for sinners, the coming king who will die for his citizens, and the second Adam who will reconcile us to the father, restoring what was lost at the fall. That's what's about to take place. Scene number one, the Old Testament imagery. Leads into scene number two. Scene number two, the friend's betrayal. The friend's betrayal. Verse two, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So understand the timing now. Between verses one and two, Jesus filled like never before with the unimaginable horror what was about to befall him, again, not the physical pain of the cross, 
This is the wrath of the Father. Between verses one and two, Jesus falls to the ground. He offers those three prayers we read, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Three times he prays this. But no, these three prayers are not prayers of weakness. These are not prayers of weakness. These are prayers of strength. The prayers of holiness. If there is any other way than having the very sin that I hate and you hate credited in my account, then Father, let me redeem mankind that way. But I am your submissive son. And so in your wisdom, if enduring your wrath because of sin, the sin that I hate, if that's the only way, then I offer you my obedience. And these are prayers of strength. These are prayers of holiness, not weakness. And you have a holy Jesus then contrasted with a faithless disciple in verse two. While Jesus is offering these prayers of submission to his father, there is a disciple that has submitted himself to the devil. Back in John 13, you remember Satan had entered into Judas. It's the last time Judas was mentioned. He's indwelt by Satan himself. So Judas now is reported where Jesus would be. He's reported this to the chief priests. It's the word betraying there in verse two. In response, the religious leaders have procured the soldiers they will need. They begin their march like a small army to arrest their archenemy. It's a sinister betrayal. Notice the last phrase in verse two. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This is where Judas had prayed with Jesus throughout this week in this garden. So where Jesus had stayed with Jesus and the other 11. But on this night, it will be where he betrays the one he used to call Lord. But again, you see the holy strength of Christ here, his commitment to his cross, his love for his father's glory. See his love for us. Because Jesus does not change the normal location where he will be. This is all by design. Jesus could have gone somewhere else, but Judas would not have known where he went. Back to John 13, Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly. So now Jesus goes to the only place where Judas will be able to find him. Throughout these final hours, these final hours, one thing will be emphasized over and over again. Jesus, Jesus is in control of everything that happens. Everything. We see that starting here as Jesus refuses to flee in fear. He sees the army coming. He refuses to hide in weakness. He will not thwart. He will not thwart Judas's. He will not thwart Satan's sinister plans. 
because he will not thwart his father's redemptive will. But notice verse three. The guards coming, soldiers, think Jesus is going to hide on them. They think they're going to have to search for him, which is why Judas, having received the Roman cohort, normally 600 soldiers, probably 200 here, his guards would have been stationed at Fort Antonia, northwest side of the Temple Mount. These guards were ready, especially during Passover season, just in case any violence broke out amongst the Jews. Remember what they're celebrating, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Many want God to do the same thing for them with Rome. Guards are there. So about 200 soldiers are sent, verse three, with officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is an unholy alliance. These two groups are usually opposed to one another. They join forces here. Why? They have a common enemy. So the Jews and the Gentiles unite in this moment, unite in hatred. They do what they want to do. And yet, unbeknownst to them, they're actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. This is God's design. Think of Psalm 2. The Gentile guards are fulfilling this prophecy. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, And what do they say? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want them. We hate God. We hate his son. Soldiers are fulfilling that. They don't know it. Religious leaders are fulfilling Psalm 118. They're the builders who have rejected the stone. They're fulfilling Isaiah 53 as they despise the Messiah. By oppression, Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression, that's the taking of a victim by unjust means. By oppression, they take him away. See that here. They march in their anger, verse three, with lanterns, oil lamps, torches, Even though there's a full moon at Passover time, they bring their lamps. Why? They think the light of the world is going to try to hide in the shadows of the garden. They brought their weapons, verse three. They think Jesus is going to put up a fight. Now that's foolish. Don't fight with Jesus. It's the foolishness of the depraved mind here. They think they can overwhelm the son of God with earthly strength. They think they can bind him with human force. It's a silly thought if they remembered Psalm 2. The psalm they are fulfilling continues this way. He, the father who sits in the heaven, laughs. He laughs at the ones who are trying to take their stand against his son. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Leads into scene number three. The son's authority. The 
son's authority. You move from depravity to now authority. Verse four, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. Jesus is not caught off guard on this night, not at all. He is aware of all things that are about to happen, not only because he can see and hear the army of soldiers approaching. It's foolish. But he knows all things because he knows the prophecies. He knows the prophecies that are about to be fulfilled, that must be fulfilled. He knew Psalm 55, that he would be betrayed by a friend. He's announced that earlier. He knew Zechariah 11, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He knew Psalm 35, that he would be accused by false witnesses. He knew Isaiah 50, that he'd be slapped and spit upon. He knew Isaiah 53, that he'd be beaten, condemned to death, led like a sheep to the slaughter. He knows all the things that are coming upon him, every single one of them. But instead of hiding or fleeing or fighting back, Jesus, verse four, he went forth. He meets the enemy. Jesus is no victim. He's a submissive son fulfilling his father's will. He's a loving savior offering himself to his enemies for us. This is the sacrificing love of Christ for his people. We read that back in chapter 13. He will love us to the end. And Jesus asks, verse four, he asks, whom do you seek? Again, it reminds me of the garden. Adam, where are you? But Jesus now is asking the question, whom do you seek? So I would Jesus asks such a thing. We are just told he knows all things. Why is he asking this question? Here's the answer. Because Jesus is making the soldiers identify the criminal they have come to arrest. That's what they do in verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we've come to arrest, Jesus of Nazareth. One man, that's our warrant, one man. In the spiritual realm, why does Jesus ask this question? It's because this is the protective power of Jesus for his own. Drop down to verse eight. If you seek me, you've just admitted that. If you seek me, let these, let my men, my apostles go. And by the way, this is a command It's a stern command from a peasant teacher to a commanding officer of 200 soldiers. Again, Jesus is control of this entire evening. Let these go their way. I'm the criminal, supposed. The warrant you have is for me, not them. And thus, for you to remain within the confines of the laws... You must allow them to go their way. Only bind me, not them. This is the protective power of Christ for his own. That's what we see in verse nine. Notice the end. 
And if you belong to Christ, this verse should bring you much comfort. Here's the statement. Jesus said this to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I lost not one. That means this, Jesus knew the frailty of these men. He knew if they were bound like him, if they were arrested on this night, their faith would have faltered. They would have been lost. I have, not, I have lost not one. They would have been lost. So Jesus makes sure that will not happen. And he secures their release. Who do you seek? It's me, only take me, let them go. Christ is protecting his apostles' faith. This is a living picture, 1 Corinthians 10. Living picture. Because this is for us too. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That is true for us as well. Living picture of 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will always be faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Your faith will not utterly fail. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. It's a picture of that. It's a living picture of Jesus' promise in John 6. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. If you're Christ, you will always be Christ's. And then this promise, Christ will raise it. Everyone who has been given to him. It's not just individuals, though that's true. It's one group. If one person is lost out of that group, this can't be true. All of that group that has been given to Christ will be raised up on the last day. That's our promise. Our faith will always remain. Christ will not let his apostles be taken by these soldiers because he is unwilling to allow his people's faith to utterly fail. It was true for the apostles, it's true for us. And if you doubt, if you doubt that, if you doubt Christ's power to protect his people's faith or, make it personal, to protect your faith, well, go back to verse six. After the soldiers identified Jesus as the criminal, they've come to arrest, Jesus said what? I am, I am. The he in most of your translations is in italics. It means it's not in the original. It was added by context. But here Jesus says, I am. He's done this throughout John's gospel. He's taking for himself the divine name of God. This is the name Yahweh called himself in Exodus 3. Jesus here is claimed to be the I am who I am. The I am in human flesh, that's the claim, divine claim. And upon this declaration of deity, God the Father allowed just a bit, like a thimble size or something smaller than that, a thimble sized bit of his son's divine majesty to be felt. 
which is why verse six, they, it's the soldiers, it's the chief priests, it's the Pharisees, it's Judas, it's even Satan indwelling Judas. They drew back and fell to the ground like a vanquished army that had just lost a war. I am. It's all it took. What David, what David thanked God for doing for him in the Psalms, Jesus, the greater David, does for himself here. Listen to Psalm 27. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, sounds familiar, right? My adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. You can see the parallel. This is a preview of what Isaiah 45 promises. That one day the word will go forth from Yahweh's mouth. It's a preview of this. The word goes forth and every knee, Jew to Gentile, every knee, even the spiritual realm, even Satan and his demons, every knee will bow in defeat before the one true God. This is a preview of that. I am, that's all it took. But this was not that day. And so Jesus allows his enemies to dust themselves off, get back up, and in their depravity and hardness of heart, do what they were sent to do and arrest God's son. It leads into scene number four, the Savior's submission. The Savior's submission, but not before Peter, impulsive Peter, tries to protect his master. So at this point, Luke adds, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, this arrest, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? But before Jesus could answer, notice verse 10, Simon Peter then having a sword, short sword, kind of like a knife. So short sword, long knife, okay? It's hidden under his robe. He drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Now, Peter was not aiming for the ear, you know, like, you know, it's not what he's doing. He's aiming for the man's throat. Man then ducks, cuts off the ear. Peter's trying to free Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's trying to free him, but freedom was not the plan the father had chosen for his son. And so verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. Peter, remember what I said in John 3. Remember that. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must divine necessity, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I must go to the cross. I need to be arrested. I need to be turned over to the Gentiles. Put the sword away. Remember what I told you in John 8. When I am lifted up, when I'm put on that cross, I will draw all men to myself, all kinds of men from Jew to Gentile. I must go to the cross because Peter, your life depends upon it. Put the sword away. Luke adds that Jesus said, stop. 
no more of this. And then this, love it. And he touched his ear and healed him. The creator restores his creation. It's like Genesis. Jesus did not need Peter's protection. Matthew adds this. Jesus offers this rebuke. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions, armies of angels? We have 200 soldiers. 200 soldiers. I have 12 legions of angels. Peter, have you forgotten who I am? I'm the glorious son. But then this statement, how then will the scripture be fulfilled? I'm on a divine timetable. The scripture that says it must happen this way. I'm the glorious son whom the angels answer to, but, but I'm also the suffering servant who must fulfill my father's design, even if that means the horror of a cross. So verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, the cup, the cup, which the Father has given me, the cup of wrath. This is again, Old Testament imagery. The cup of wrath, the cup of suffering, the cup of death. And in the Old Testament, the cup was an image for the fate of God's enemies. God's enemies, his judgment against enemies. Jesus says that cup is the fate of him now, of the Son cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The implication is, shall I not drink it on your behalf? A greater protection was needed for these men, a greater protection. Not only did they need Jesus to protect their faith from the arresting soldiers, which he did, but they also needed to be protected from the greater threat. And this is the threat that hangs over every sinner who enters this world. If you have not come to Christ in saving faith, this is the threat that hangs over your head. The threat is that God's just wrath will be poured out upon every sinner not protected by Christ. And yet Jesus says in grace, I'll drink that cup for you. I'll drink that cup for you. I'll endure that wrath for you. J.C. Ryle has put it well. Let us carefully remember that our blessed Lord suffered and died of his own free will. He did not die because he could not help it. He did not suffer because he could not escape. All the soldiers of Pilate's army could have not could have not taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt a hair of his head if he had not given them permission. But here, as in all his earthly ministry, Jesus was a willing sufferer. He had set his heart on accomplishing our redemption. He loved us and gave himself for us cheerfully, willingly, gladly in order to make atonement for our sins. We have a savior who is far more willing to save us 
then we are willing to be saved. Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon as he was willing to be taken prisoner, to bleed, and to die. This is the saving love Christ has for his people. A love that submitted himself to his father's will, even to his own hurt, in order to secure salvation. But here's the key, secure salvation for all who come to him in saving faith. The end of the passage, you must ask yourself, have you done that? Are you shielded from God's wrath by Christ, by his sacrifice as he drank that cup of wrath for you? Have you come to him in saving faith? Father, we are thank you, thankful for our glorious savior. We have a glorious son to whom we are united to. We have a savior who loved us to the very end. We thank you that in your sovereignty, you overrule all of this evil, all of this evil, so that sinners will be saved, sacrifice will be offered. Humble us before the love of Christ, raise us in praise for your grace and your mercy. And Father, may your spirit change hearts of those here today who have never seen just how glorious Christ is. Give them eyes to see Christ as the only savior from sin. Pray this in his name, amen.